Welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today I am very honored to be joined by Mr. Colin Hanton, the original drummer of the Quarry Men. Colin, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Bart. Nice to, uh, nice to be invited. Yeah, and for those who don't know, the Quarry Men is basically a famous band from Liverpool that featured uh, members who you, you may recognize their names, such as John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison, and you were the drummer... Um, along with some other members who we'll discuss throughout the episode. But um, what was the order that those three guys became quarrymen? John was there on his own, first of all, with me and a few of his school friends. Then we met Paul. Paul was invited to join. Some of his school friends left. And then we met uh, George Harrison. He was invited to join. So then it was John, Paul, George and me. Oh, wow, man. So I think we can be as detailed and and people love anything to do with the Beatles and this kind of stuff and you are definitely a part of that history so let's back up here a little bit and um how did you meet John to begin with right well I wasn't a schoolmate of any of the lads I'm slightly older than the rest of them I'd already started work as an apprentice upholsterer called Guy Rogers uh, but I had a close friend Eric Griffiths now Eric Griffiths went to school with John Lennon and John and Eric were learning to play guitar. And so once Eric heard that I'd bought a small drum kit from Frank Hesse's, uh, he came to my house to see them and hear me. And uh, I was invited to join the Quarryman simply because I had a drum kit. Hmm. Wow. Right place at the right time. Right place at the right time. Rod Davis, who was a friend of John's as well in the school, he went out at the weekend and bought a banjo went into school on Monday morning, said to Eric, I bought a banjo at the weekend, and Eric said, do you want to be in the Quarrymen? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So he had a banjo, so he was in the group. Wow. And that's how it happened. That's the way it went. So did you want to be a drummer since you were a little kid? I mean, you, so you, just, you went out and bought one. For many reasons, that was a great purchase, just because the drums are such a fun instrument. But were you, since you were a little kid, kind of tapping on things, and you just wanted to be a drummer? Not necessarily as a little kid. I was thinking about this through the evening. I think my first interest was uh, when we were a much more Christian country. We used to have a lot of uh, church bands, you know, like the Boy Scouts, the Boys Brigade, uh, the Sea Scouts. So there was always bands marching on, particularly on a Sunday with the mm. church band. And you would, the first thing you would hear, I think, was the drums coming up the hill, you know, so I'd be out marching up with them. So. Yeah. Uh, and then I started to watch some of the movies, like the big band movies, you know. And I just thought, no, that's it. I'd like to be a, a jazz drummer. That's yeah, absolutely. Who, so who, I, who were some of your early influences? I'm assuming everyone likes Gene Krupa in that era. That seemed like a, a, a pretty big one. But who, who else, you know? Well, that was it, really. Gene Krupa, uh, Buddy Rich. Uh, and just basically the big bands, you know, we went to the, we went to the cinema to see... Uh, Glenn Miller's story and things like that, and uh, uh, Benny Goodman's story, uh, High Society. Um, and we actually saw Louis Armstrong, my wife and I, which was a girlfriend at the time. We saw him in, in Manchester, Louis Armstrong, when he came over with his, his mm. band. So, yeah. Whenever it was on, I tended to watch the, uh, the drummer. Oh, man. And then, yeah. of course, in, in Liverpool, we had a couple of jazz venues where you could go down and see the local jazz bands and yeah the drums just fascinated me so i bought a small drum kit and put a jazz record on and just learned to play along to the jazz record 
Now, was it easy for you to get a drum set in Liverpool? I know. Um, so, and, and I got to say this before we get too far. So our mutual friend, your fellow, you know, Liverpoolian, I'm sure that's not the right term, but uh, Andy Dwyer, <laughs> who runs ADC Drums. Andy has been a great friend of the show and has connected us and has sent me, you know, reading materials from your book, which we'll talk about. Um, and it, it's just Andy has been awesome. So Andy said to me, though, that it wasn't like you can just go out and get drum lessons. He said there wasn't, and, and that goes for Ringo as well. He said there wasn't really a, um, you know, a proper drum teacher in that area until I believe Andy said the 1970s. So you were sort of self-taught. Is that correct? Well, yes. Anybody who's heard me will know I'm self-taught. <laughs> That's a good thing. I didn't even I didn't even think of getting uh, drum lessons, to be honest with you. I didn't, it didn't occur to me that I would need someone to show me how to do it. I just put the records on and listened to what was going on and just joined in, yeah. played around, kept the beat, fiddled about a bit. Hmm. You know, not like the drummers today. I mean, they didn't have masses of kit, you know. Yeah, sure. I think less is more, I think, these days. <laughs> now, do you, I'm sure you do, do you remember what your first drum set that you bought was in in liverpool yes my one and only drum kit that i bought it was a broadway kit by uh john gray oh yeah yeah uh, uh, in fact andy's got a an almost identical replica it's about 95 percent. you know he's made it up to look uh completely original it is a broadway kit but i think it was a red one so he had it covered in white mm-hmm. and uh I pointed out to him the badge because it was red. The badge was black, so we went to a drum fair and he found a, a red badge, so we could stick the red badge on the, the white skin. So I went up there into his shop and I I played them uh, to a couple of records that I think he recorded and they recorded. Mm, that's awesome. I hadn't played for a long time, but it just like riding a bike really with me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And now I'm assuming you don't still have that drum set. Is that correct? Your personal one? No, no, the personal one's gone. It was in the Beatles story in Liverpool for a long time. Ah. Uh, but once we got back together again in 97 and we started to tour, well, tour the world, basically, um, there was a guy from Canada. He came down to Chicago, I think it was, to to see me. He'd sort of been on about buying my drums and uh, I wasn't ready to sell them, to be honest with you. I just... No, I had no intentions of selling them, but he said, I'll come and see you in Chicago. So we just talked and we had a drink and he mm. said, well, what, you know, what would it take for you to, to sell them? I said, well, then, you know, I don't need to sell them. He said, well, don't you want a new car? And I said, well, strangely enough, I've just, I've just bought a new car. So no, I, I don't really feel the need to sell my drums yet. So yeah. he just said, well, what would you, what would you take? And I said, I just come up with some stupid figure and, uh, a few weeks later, after we got home, he wrote to me with a, a large check, and you know he had so many drums. Unfortunately, oh my but no, gosh. The, the money was pretty good. Money was pretty good. So, well, I mean, how that was it? No one's offering me a you know a quote unquote stupid amount of money for my drums. So you should feel pretty honored that like <laughs> just from playing your drums um, with these you know three guys for a relative short yeah. amount of time has literally turned into where you can, you know, that however many years later, you can, you know, support your your life with your drum set. I mean, that's pretty awesome. That's right. 
Yeah, yeah. she came in very handy. Still, still, we've got still got some left. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine one of these days it will reappear for sale, and again they will go for a, an even more stupid amount of money. So, but there you go. It's done me very well at the time. Took a lot of pressure off, you know, mortgages and stuff. Oh gosh, yeah. I'm sure. Well, and you deserve it, obviously. I mean, it's the the collectible nature of all that stuff with uh you know the ringo kits and um, and your drums obviously is is uh mm-hmm. absurd amounts of money even my old drumsticks are, uh, are ridiculous i mean i i sold i sold a drumstick with a, a ticket of authenticity uh not for a, a horrendous amount there's a few hundred pounds i think there's a pair of sticks but then we were playing somewhere lake las vegas and we were playing there and some guy sorted me out and he'd he'd flown down from flown down from Hawaii, he said. And he described the sticks to me and he said he'd bought them and he wanted to know if they were they were genuine. So I said, Well that's yeah, that sounds like them. They're, they're genuine. So I said, How much did you pay for them? One thousand one hundred pounds you paid for them. Oh man. I mean that's I said, When you phone me, I've got a drawer full of sticks. Wow. Money in the bank, right? <laughs> Money in the bank, yeah. In fact, I'm holding an original John Gray drumstick right now. Oh, boy. Gosh. It's only one. Pete shot and broke the other one. but I mean, one set went with the drum kit, but I had two sets. So I've still got the original varnished with the red, you know, red tip on it, and it's John Gray. There's a letter R next to it, so hmm. I'm quite not down. But, yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just amazing what silly stuff goes for. Yeah, well, again, it's it's pretty cool that you're you're a part of that. Um, but all right, so getting back on our kind of like, we'll go through the timeline here. So, uh, and I'm actually looking at uh, a page from your book that Andy Dwyer sent me. Um, that's kind of giving me a chronological order of of your mm-hmm. story. So, um, it says autumn 1956. You buy a drum kit from Hesse's in Liverpool. And then, yeah, Frank Hesse's, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. and then late 1956, you joined John Lennon's Quarrymen Skiffle Group. So, yes, can you explain, as a person who was there, what Skiffle is? Well, Skiffle basically came from America. It's um, you know rent money. Uh, people used to get together with whatever instruments they could fashion out of. Uh, I mean, we had tea chest bases where you had um, washtub bases, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people would just organize a, a fun session and raise some rent money, you know, to pay the rent. So Lonnie Donegan, who's this you know, Scottish guy, he sort of redid Rock Island Line and everybody went mad for Rock Island Line. And basically it was just showed us how to, you know, three three chords on a guitar. And yeah, uh, well, a lot, of, a lot of the groups didn't have drums, but. Three chords on your guitar, your uh, T-chest bass, and booming away with that. And, and you could get up and, and play. That's basically what we did. We got up and played. Yeah. Not particularly yeah. not particularly well. And we didn't have a, a huge repertoire, but just the fun of getting up in front of our friends, the local church hall, and, and playing, making music. So then I have here December 12th, 1956, with a, which is actually my brother's birthday. You have the same birthday okay. as my brother. Um you guys, it says at his party in 1956, you hung out with your new pals and the quarry men, which is just mm-hmm. think, thinking about it now. It's pretty cool to, to just imagine you and a young John Lennon there um, hanging out. You know, that sounds like a fun time. Well, it was a fun time. But of course, 
you know, we didn't realize what was happening. We didn't realize we were making history. We were just, we were just teenagers. Well, they were teenagers. Me and I was te- still a teenager. I was yeah. 18, but teenager. We were just teenagers having fun, basically. Yeah. Uh, when we weren't playing, well, we just went, you know, we'd hang out together. Just kids, you know, that's, that's pretty funny to think about that. But so soon after though, um, it says that you guys play in 1957, you play your uh, first public engagement at uh, a golf club. Now, what was that like? Uh, again, Lee Park Golf Club. Yeah, I'd have forgotten about that one, Mars. Um, yes, what it was, it was, um, it was a way to get into the cabin. The cabin was run by... Alan Sitner, and Alan Sitner's father was a member of Lee Park Golf Club, and a friend of uh, John's was Nigel Wally. Nigel Wally didn't want to play an instrument, so he's he was elected to be our manager, believe it or not. <laughs> but he was a, a a golf apprentice, which I never knew existed. But he was a golf apprentice at the Lee Park Golf Club, and he'd asked Sitt- Alan Sitner if we could play at the cavern. So he said, "Well, come to the." Come to the uh, golf club first, and I'll you know I'll see what see what you're made of. So hmm. that was it. We headed off to the golf club, and we just got a plate full of sandwiches for our trouble, and uh, <laughs> we did the best we could. And um, well, I played with one hand because some young lady just brought a chair over next to me, grabbed my left arm, and hugged me, and I just did what I could with my right hand. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's so cool! <laughs> and, John looked over and said, though, we best carry on. Colin's busy. <laughs> oh, wow. Man. She wouldn't let go of my left hand, no matter what I tried. That is After a... that, I mean, I think sitting said we weren't that bad, so we could uh, we could get down to the cavern. Jeez. Hmm. That's so funny. So even at that point, you started to have the, uh, you know, I guess you would say that effect on on young women, on, on your fans of uh, <laughs> that the Beatles became famous for of like making people kind of lose their mind and wanting to be <laughs> close to you guys. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> early days. It was early days, but it was a lot of fun. That's, That's awesome. You got some sandwiches. What else, what else matters at, at that point when you're 18, you know, there's not well, as many. Right. <laughs> well, I know somebody passed a hat around amongst the audience, but I, I don't remember getting a, getting an awful lot in the hat to be honest with you. Yeah. But that wasn't that wasn't the point. The point was we were we'd been up in front of an audience and we played, you know. Yeah, that was the thing. Getting up and playing somewhere. Sure. So, so that's early '57. Um, so it says then, and again, I'm looking at the chronology in your book here that that is just awesome and, and really helpful for us right now. So, um, I believe it says in July '57 the Quarrymen plays the St. Peter's Annual Church. Uh, in Woolton, and you in, it says you encounter Paul McCartney for the first time. What does that mean that you encounter him for the first time? Well, we, we none of us knew Paul. Uh, we didn't know Paul. Uh, we just did a friend of ours, uh, Ivan Vaughan. Uh, he went to school with John, uh, with Paul. And we had the same birthdays. Uh, and he invited Paul along to the Woolton Faith to see his friends, the Quarrymen. So. Hmm. Paul came along with uh, Ivan Vaughan to uh, to see what was going on. Um, basically, that was it. Met the met the lads in the church hall between the afternoon session and the evening session, which was the grand 
grand dance. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, he, uh, I mean, he he showed John how to um, play Twenty Flight Rock with he, re- he he tuned John's guitar to guitar chords because John was playing banjo chords, mm. as was Eric because the. They tried to go for lessons, but they thought it was too boring. They didn't want to read dots. They wanted to play. They just wanted their three chords. So. Yeah. John's mum, Aunt uh, Julie, she could play banjo. She said, come up and I'll show you how to play banjo chords. So they just used the three top strings and ignored the other one. And so uh, Paul retuned, turned it upside down and played 20 Flight Rocks. And he knew all the words, which was a big deal in those days to get all the words of a song. Yeah, still is a big deal. Well, yeah, but you can buy a CD or a record now. Oh, or, sure. You, know, you get it on iTunes. I mean, back then, I mean, back then you'd have, you'd have to have bought the record, which was a little bit pricey, uh, or wait till it came on radio. Uh, well, it was uh, Radio Luxembourg back in the day, wasn't it? They were the only pe- places. That was the only place that played. Uh, well, what, what I would call our kind of music, mm-hmm. not, not not big bands or Victor Sylvester and his dance band. You'd have to tune into Radio Luxembourg. Now, you would grab some words as they were singing a particular song, but you couldn't guarantee they were going to play that song again that night or even that week. So um, it was difficult to get, this, to get all the words down in, in one go. You might have to wait weeks finally finished the song Paul knew all this all the words to 20 flight rock which was a which was a big in hmm. you know? yeah boy that just that you never really think about that you kind of take it for granted like you just googling things now or listen to it over and over again but yeah, again, now yeah. you just google it and print out the lyrics and you don't even need to think about it but what well, you know wow that's that's pretty awesome so so he was in Paul was then in the band from that point, right? So then it was it was you, John, Paul, and then uh, the other member was it John Duff Lowe? Is that is he still incorrect? Well, John Duff came a little bit late. There was John Paul and Eric Griffiths. He was John's okay. mate. He was the other guitarist. Got it. I was on drums. Uh, Len Gary was on TTS bass. Do you know exactly what a TTS bass was? No, I was going to say, can you explain what that is? <laughs> right. Well, this was before tea bags were invented, wasn't it? Tea used to come in the country in a, a wooden box, plywood wooden box lined with silver paper. And basically, it was just full of loose tea. So when you wanted a quarter pound of tea, you would go to the grocers and he would just get a, a paper bag out dig a big shovel into this tea and pour it into the paper bag and weigh it out as a quarter of a pound. And that's the way you got your tea. Hmm. So once all the tea had gone, there was lots of these tea chests around, which people used. If they were moving house, they would use them to store all their books and all their precious possessions. And mm-hmm. So there was always lots of tea chests about. But basically, if you turned it upside down, cut a small hole in the middle and put a a thick string through, secure it on the inside. You've got a broom handle and stood it on one corner and tied the string to the top of the broom handle. By flex, pulling the broom handle and, and tightening all, slacking the string off sure. and plucking at it, you could get a decent like boom, 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 mm. boom. That, that, was a, that was the base. 
I mean, they're very popular. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because I'm sure you were playing a real John Gray drum set. John and Paul, and I'm sure you, you guys all throughout the band were playing real, quote unquote, real guitars and stuff. And then to have one member, though, playing kind of a broomstick T-chest bass was kind of uh, that. Was he the only one with like a handmade instrument like that? He was actually, yes. He was actually, yeah. That's yeah. funny. I mean, right at the very beginning, we had Pete Shotton, who's John's mate. He played a washboard. Oh, cool. You know, but when we met Paul and Paul was joining, he decided to hang up his washboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He didn't feel quite comfortable playing his washboard in front of the girls. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's a, it, the washboard, though, has a great history and is just an awesome instrument. But when someone next to you is playing, a, a you know, an electric guitar and you're a young guy, you might feel a little silly playing that particular <laughs> instrument as opposed to, you know. Well, we weren't, we weren't electric in those days, by oh, the way. Sure. It was a while before we got electric. I mean, basically, we were playing um, acoustic guitars, three acoustic guitars, hmm. the bass behind it, and, and me on the drums. And then, you know, a bit later on, we got John DeFloat to play piano, but that was, uh, that was a bit later on. I think that was 58, I think. Mm, interesting. That kind of helps put us in that, you know, the picture of what's happening there. So I'm assuming you would have to then play pretty quiet, like self-regulate yourself to make sure that the music, you know, the guys were playing up front was loud enough. Because uh, obviously, even later on with the Beatles and stuff, I know with people screaming and all that, it was it was hard for the amps and the PA system to keep up. So you then must have had to play kind of quieter right, when you play these gigs? Well, that was unfortunate. I, they did used to moan at me and complain that I was too loud, but you know, come on, the drummer. Yeah, it's drums. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to sit there back fiddling away. Let's, let's go for it. <laughs> yeah, really. Okay, so um, the next key moment we have here, which is pretty big, so it says December 1957, uh, you guys were introduced to George Harrison. Uh, it will become known as the Morgue Skiffle Club in Oak Hill Park, Liverpool. Um, talk about that a little bit. Well, what it was, uh, Paul knew uh, George Harrison from school, and they knew he was a good guitarist. Um, coming back from one of the gigs that we'd done, I, I'd gone off with my friends to the pub, and they'd got the bus home. And uh, Paul introduced George to John. And George played guitar boogie for them or ranchy or something. That was on the top of a double-decker bus going back to Walton. Um, and I think John was keen, you know, to have G George in. But I hadn't met George, so they came up with this idea where we could go to Alan Caldwell's skiffle group that he was planning to open up, the morgue. So they're just the three of us, I think it was, went along to the morgue. And uh, that's when I met George Harrison. He was standing there ready in the hall with his guitar and he played Brownshee or whatever it was. So, so that was it. Mm. We all went home. And, and Nigel Wally, who was our manager, came to my house on the Friday and he said, uh, what do you think about that lad, George Harrison? I said, well, he's brilliant. And he said, well, Paul and John are up at uh, Mendips. They want, they want George in, but they don't want four guitarists. So we want Eric to leave. And as Eric had got me in the band, and I suppose Eric was my first friend, um, they needed my 
did he do my okay? You know, was I going to pack in and take me drums or what? And I said to Nigel, well, if, they, if, if that's what they're thinking about, that's what they decided, you know, I don't really have a problem with it. Mm. So that was it. Eric was out and George was in. That was late 57 somewhere. That's the tale as old as time of like people getting kicked out of bands and saying, well, that's my friend. Are you going to go with them? No, I'll stay here with you guys kind of thing. Like that's every band in history has some sort of problem like that. So you're, you're not alone there. But so now just to clarify the band at this point is you four is Paul, George, John, and you, there's no other members. Okay. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a powerhouse of a group right there. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, a week drama, maybe, but yeah, we were still doing okay. Did you feel like that this was something special at that point with those guys? Well, obviously, nobody was aware of the history. I, I knew we were getting better, you know, John, Paul and George. They, they were quite good. So, yeah, we were improving. We were getting along. We were doing better. We, we were actually getting paid to perform, you know. Uh, Charlie Mac, Charlie, uh, yeah, Charlie McBain at... Uh, at um, the Wilson Hall in Garston. He was the first guy who got us in to play this uh, club and were paying us. Hmm. Paying us £5 a session, which, you know, a lot of people would be working, working a week for £5. I mean, it wasn't £5 each, it was £5 between us, but it's still decent money. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you've, you've uh, you know, you graduated from getting paid in sandwiches. Um <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> to actual money. So it says January 58, George Harrison makes his Quarrymen debut at the Cavern alongside John and Paul. Now, the Cavern, that was a pretty happening spot, right? Yeah, well, it was, originally it started off as a jazz club. Uh, I think there was a club in, in Paris called, you know, Le, uh, Le Cavern or something. Uh, so it basically, it was a jazz club. I used to go down there and watch the jazz bands. But then, of course, rock and roll was kicking off. You know, Skiffle was dying out. Rock and roll was coming in. And we'd started to do a bit more rock and roll, Elvis Presley stuff. Um, so, you know, there was more and more sort of that kind of band that was, or group that was playing at the, at the cavern. You know, that became a bit more popular down the cavern. So, hmm. yep, we were there. We did okay. Yeah. That's great. So... If I'm my math is correct, you're around 19 or 20 at this point. Um, how much older were you than those other guys? Because I know George, I believe, was younger than uh, Paul and John, right? What what would be the ages of the guys at that point? Yeah, probably a year and a half older than John. Probably, okay. you know, two and a half older than Paul. I, I'm not quite sure of their sure. dates of birth and that, but. Probably uh, four years between me and George, I think. Wow. Okay. You know, he was about he was about fourteen when I think it started. I think, and I was eighteen probably, hmm. something like that. But yeah, and George was quite the young baby. Yeah, but quite the quite the musician, and almost seems like an old soul a little bit. With uh, even later, just his demeanor and everything, and just kind of, uh, I mean, the world was thrown at them, which no one's really ready for. Um, but. So the next key thing here, which I was actually listening to these recordings this morning. um, So in July of 58, you guys recorded two songs with the Quarrymen in Percy Phillips studio in Kingston, Liverpool. 
It says the quarrymen personnel on that occasion was Colin, John, Paul, George, and John Duff Lowe. Is that correct? What what happened there? Yeah, well, John Duff Lowe was a he played piano and he was a friend of Paul's. So okay, um, he'd been he'd been invited to join the, the the group on a couple of occasions, but particularly when we were rehearsing. Uh, that will be the day. Buddy Holly's That will be the day. Yes. Which was one of, which was one of our good pieces to do. And uh, the one that Paul had written, in spite of all the danger. So we used to go to Paul's house, you know, regularly, I think, on a Sunday afternoon and run through those two songs ready for, ready for the, uh, the big recording session. <laughs> well, what was it like? What was the recording session? You know, take us, I mean, as much detail as you can give. What, what was it all, all about? Well, it was a terrace house in Kensington, just on the edge of Liverpool city centre. Uh, and it originally it had been, um, well, back in the old days, you used to have to take your battery from your radio to be, re- to be recharged. And Percy Phillips used to recharge these like, wet batteries, I think they were. Mm. I think they were filled with liquid. Uh, and that's basically what his shop was. Uh, but then he got the idea of buying some recording equipment and uh, turning his back room, which would have been like a dining room, into uh, a recording studio. So we went into this room, and I think there was one mic there, and they, he, the window was blocked up with you know thick thick blankets. Uh, he put a big pallyas thing over the door to keep the sound quite down. So it was very very basic. It was very uh, well, primitive as the recording studios we've been in since. <laughs> it was very basic. Um, and that was it. Basically, he just asked us to uh, run through the things. And then um, we'd already discussed the money. We knew it was actually going to cost us three shillings and six pence each back in the day, which was 17 shillings and six pence for the, for the record, mm. which was less than one pound. Paul tells people now that we all have to pay a pound each. Well, there was no way we were going to pay five pounds. That, that was just outrageous. But he said, I'll record you on, uh, on tape. He said, then we can edit it and um, put it onto the, onto the shellac. So John said, well, how much will that cost? And Percy Phillips said, that, well, that would cost a pound. And John and Paul went white, and John said, there's no way we can pay a pound. I mean, that was another six pence each. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's laughable now yeah. at the cost. But he said, okay, well, I'll just go straight on to the shellac. So we ran through uh, Buddy Holly's, that would be the day, with no problem, really. But then when we came to run through, in spite of all the danger, Percy Phillips saying, no, that's far too long. You know, it's not going to fit on the shellac. But John said, look, that's the song we're paying. That's what we're doing. So we just started playing and we went on to the shellac. And towards the end of, in spite of all the danger, Percy Phillips, Percy Phillips was drawing his his hand across his throat to John, trying to say, you know, cut, cut now. But John just kept going. And just before the needle lifted off the, the round sticker in the middle of the shellac, it it finished. <laughs> oh man! So we just about got it all on there. Yeah. And they sound great. I mean, for, you know, it is what it is, obviously, with one microphone being in the room. Uh, people can find that, actually. It is on 
Spotify and all that stuff. I believe it's on the Beatles anthology one. Um, oh, that's right. It was yes, yes. Yeah. I got I got a couple of bob for that. Yeah, good, good. You deserve it. I got well, well, I because I paid to have it made, and I was entitled to. Uh, yeah, you know, a couple of pound back. <laughs> you get literally your your one your pound back, but um, so it is. Uh, in spite of all the danger, and that'll be the day. Are the two songs yeah. now? One thing that Andy Dwyer, again of ADC Drums in Liverpool, who's helped me out a lot, said is um, he told me that John was the first one to take the record home and played it to his mom. But yes, she was then tragically uh, hit by a car three days later and killed. And yes. it said he it just kind of destroyed his, you know, joy from this. Like w when you make your first recording, it's a big deal. But I mean, his mom was killed right after. Mm -hmm. What was that yeah. like? Well, that did upset the whole whole thing. I mean, he was it was a bit of a recluse for the you know, for the seven weeks, couldn't face sure. the world. I mean, he'd lost his mum earlier on, hadn't he? And then he found it again, and then he lost her. You know, it's yeah. pretty tragic, really. Yeah. Hmm. But we're only assuming that his mum heard it. We're just hoping that he took it straight to his mum's, which I'm sure he would have done. I'm sure he would have taken it straight to Julie to let her listen to it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Tragic. Tragic. And... Another thing Andy said that before we move on, this is this is backing this is backing up, I guess, at this point, about 19 years. Andy mentioned and expand on this a little bit that Paul McCartney's mom was the midwife when for you when you were born. Is that correct? Well, that, 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 that's a bit of a that's a bit of a supposition. Really. <laughs> I was born in the same hospital where she was the midwife. Okay. That's definitely it. So whether she was on duty that night, we'll never know really. Yeah. It was just yeah. a, it was just one of those things that was a possibility, you know. She could have been there. She could have helped. It's a cool story, so let's just assume that she was there and uh <laughs> Yeah, no, no, let's not let's, let's not ruin a good story by the truth. Yeah, it. <laughs> exactly. It's we'll we'll just leave it at that. But um Still, I mean, even the fact that you were born at the hospital where she worked is just kind of, uh, I don't know how many, I mean, there's probably not that many hospitals in Liverpool at that time where, you know, but still, it's it's a pretty miraculous uh, coincidence. Well, it's, yeah, it's something to think about, isn't it? Gives, yeah, thought, but yeah. Yeah. How many copies did you get? You know, was he printing? Oh, no, no, that's it. Just one shellac. That's it. Wow. The only one in the world. Wow. <laughs> So th how did that then get from, you know, 1958 at Percy Phillips studio to Spotify in 2021? Who was the keeper of that record? Well, eventually it ended up with John Duflo, but um, the idea was that we would all to share this phone. Oh, well, we would all have to have shares in this. So John had it, you know, Paul had it, George had it, I had it. Uh, and I had a friend, Charlie Roberts, and he worked in a, a big factory in Liverpool. And they, back in the day, this was quite a rare thing, but they had a PA system. Hmm. And you could take records in and somebody would play the records, you know, to all the factory workers. So uh, Charlie Roberts took our record in and that was played quite a few times in the factory. But then I think it was just left with him. You know, I forgot about it. I think hmm. We all forgot about it. 
things were moving on. The world was getting mad for the other lads, weren't they? Yeah. I think by and large we forgot about the, the record, but uh, when we got back together again in 1997, 40 years later, I met my friend Charlie Roberts again, and then his wife was there. And she said back in the day, in the late 90s, there was a mad craze of dipping records into boiling water to soften them up and then making them into plant pot holders, and things like that. Yeah. So wherever you went, somebody would have these horrible black plant pot holders all over the place. So she said she was sitting there with a bucket of boiling water and dipping records in, and she picked up the Quarryman record, <laughs> and she was just about to put it into the boiling water, and then she thought, no, that should really go back to one of the Quarrymen. So that was saved from the boiling water. Oh, boy. And I think... I think Charlie Roberts knew or met Dufflow and gave it to Duff. So Duff put it in what he called his, his sock drawer at home and left it there for well for a long, long time until I think he decided he would give it some uh, you know advertisement. So he he spoke to a, a newspaper who put the story in about this Quarryman rare Quarryman record. It might be going up for sale. And then Paul McCartney phoned Duff's mother in Liverpool the very next day and said, I need to talk to Duff. So she put him on to Duff and he said, you know, you can't sell that record. It belongs to us or it belongs to me. So there was some negotiations going on and then Paul got it off Duff for, you know, whatever amount of money which I'm thankful for because it did end up on the anthology. So I got a call off Apple lawyers to say that because I contributed in, uh, to make the record, my three and six, so I was with my uh, three and six back with um, 40 years interest or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Unbelievable. It's just like it could have all – it could have been destroyed, obviously. And I know exactly what you're talking about where – you know, the records where people would mold them and kind of just turn them into some like, or like a little like, you know, thing you put your change in or something like that. Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, <laughs> unbelievable. That is so cool. And it it really, how many takes did you guys do? Was that one take each or did you get a few tries? Uh, we did. We ran through it to rehearse it once. And um, that's when he timed us. That's when he said the Quite of all the danger was too long. Mm. We said no, and naturally went straight on to just recording it. The needle got onto the hot shellac, and we were away. Mm. Bam, bam, slam. Thank you, ma'am. Yeah, <laughs> so cool. And and you, all right. So first off, you sound great. You know, one thing about those old recordings is sometimes there's a couple key moments I heard where you really popped through, but it's obviously kind of the, what really cuts is the vocal and the guitar and stuff like that. And those guys, I mean, they sound, it's not that far from that point to where we get to, you know, world domination with the, with the Beatles, but they sounded very, very for being mm -hmm. such young guys, they sounded great. Um, obviously as mm -hmm. singers, it was pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah. You think you're putting me down now, boss. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> you sound amazing too, but in the big history kind of like of, of I know. Yeah. I know. Pretty I cool. Know. 
Well, Percy Phillips said that I was too loud when he wanted to hear my drum, so I moved back from the mic and I was still too loud and I ended up right in the corner of the room and he was still uncomfortable. So I had a scarf in those days for some reason. Maybe it was a fashion thing, you don't know. So I just lay them over my snare drum and uh, that seemed to quieten him down for him. So he seemed to be quite happy with that. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, it sounds great. Um, obviously that made history. So that was the first recording for all you guys. I mean, which is, which is very, very historic, but January, February, uh, 59, you played your last ever gig with John, Paul and George at the Finch lane busman's sports and social club. Why did it come to an end? What, what happened? Well, I think I'd, I'd see there was no cars in those days. I, my drums were on and off the buses, you know. Mm-hmm. I carried the bass in one hand and everything else went into a, a large suitcase. Um, I mean, I didn't think we were getting particularly far. Those three had started to mold together. They were spending more time, the three of them, you know, without me. I would get a call at the last minute to say, we've got a gig on Saturday. We'd turn up and they'd have material that I hadn't heard, so I'd have to just try and keep up the best I could. So I think they were already moving away from me. I think Paul wasn't overly happy with me as a drummer. Hmm. Um, so there was that going on. But when we went to the, the, the sportsman's uh, club, um, it was a really nice club, proper stage, you know, curtains in front of it. Not rough and ready. It was a really nice place. So we went up there and uh, we were supposed to do five songs. So we ran through the five songs. But we were asked to line up behind the curtain. As immediately the curtain started to move, we had to start playing, which is what we did. And when we finished the last song, the curtain was supposed to close, but it didn't close. You could see the guy in the corner fighting with the curtain. You know. So John just said, well, while he's fighting with the curtain, we'll do another song. So we came off and everyone was saying, that was really good, that was really brilliant. So uh, there's a pint at the bar, which is the worst thing anyone could have said. <laughs> John, Paul and myself were quite, uh, well, we didn't stop at one pint, did we? We got quite drunk. <laughs> George was sober because his mum and dad were in the audience. Hmm. But uh, we went on for the second, well, we were in the, we were in the green room having a good old sing song and drinking and the DJ came in and said, right, five minutes, lads, you're back on. I said, what's going on again? He said, yes, you got two spots. Well, I didn't know we were doing two spots. I was a bit annoyed about that. Mm. But we went on. It was a bit of a disaster. You know, John and Paul couldn't stop giggling and messing about. When we came off, the guy said, uh, well, that's, you know, you've blown that, lads. That, you know, that was a disaster. So we were in the green room and he came and he said, look, best thing I can do is ask this guy from, uh, the um, the uh, the bingo hall to come and uh, have a talk to you. He said, but he's not gonna he's not gonna hire you. Now that's when I found out that this guy had come for an audition. Oh, because uh, he wanted to he wanted to hire you know a group to play regular at his bingo hall, and I didn't know about this, so that annoyed me. Anyway, he came in, he said, you know, he thought the first one was very good, the first half was brilliant, but the second half was no good and you can't treat the audience like that. 
and the drunken John Lennon was sitting back in the corner and making comments because this guy still had stage makeup on, you know, which didn't go down well at all. It was all a bit of a disaster. So from being drunk and happy, I started to get sobered up very quickly and, and felt quite annoyed that I didn't know there was supposed to be an audition and a brilliant opportunity there had, had just been thrown away for the sake of a couple of extra pints. So yeah. we headed for home. I was still, I was a bit annoyed. Paul was messing about, and in the end, I told him to shut up. Uh, Pete Shatton, who came with us to carry stuff, he just said, Carl, this is our bus stop. And I jumped off the bus with him, ran downstairs, and got off. And it wasn't actually our stop, but it was as good as. So, hmm. you know, that was it. That, uh, I thought, well, that's it. Put my drums on the wardrobe, and I left them there for 40 years until 97. Wow. So they continued on, and then Pete Best was the next drummer of the Quarry Men before became the Beatles, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Was he just, uh, and I, I don't know a ton about his background, was he just another local guy? Did you know Pete? I didn't know Pete at the time, no, but his, his mum, uh, Mona Best, she'd uh, turn the, they had a big, big old house. She turned the cellar into uh, a youth club, was, uh, you know, a club for the kids to, to hang out in so they started playing down there and you know pete had a drum kit so pete became the drummer yeah which lasted from 1960 to i think like 62 if i'm not mistaken and then obviously ringo got brought on board so you know with those core three guys john paul and george the yeah. drummer being obviously Ringo was a drummer for the Beatles. He's what you think of, but there's certain members of a band that kind of rotate, and it seems like the drummer was that guy in this group. Yes. <laughs> so that that must have not felt great, obviously, to see what your you know your former bandmates were doing. But but I I, I gotta think that there being the buffer between you and Ringo having Pete Best in the middle there that had to at least make it feel a little bit better. I never, I never really felt bad about it at all. I mean, I'd, I'd made my decision to to pack in, so I'd, I'd packed in. Yeah, that was yeah. that was it. Now they were drawless for a while, weren't they? Mm-hmm. They were doing auditions and playing places without a drummer. In fact, they played a couple of places and took a. Uh, I think Paul had got a drum kit by then. He took a drum kit along and sort of. If anybody in the audience could play drums, they'd uh, they'd let them get up and play drums, but. I think sometimes they got some big teddy boys up who didn't <laughs> scare the life out of them. So I don't think they did that for very long. For very long. Yeah. So they just played, the three of them played where they could without a drummer. Hmm. I mean, they could, have, they could have come and asked me to go back and probably would have done, but you know, they didn't ask me and I didn't, I didn't offer. So yeah. that's a good, the deal was done. It's a good attitude you have there. Um, and so I should have asked this way earlier, but where did the term the quarry men come from? Who came up with that name and the, the origins of that? Yeah, well, Pete Shotton is convinced that he thought of the name when, his, when uh, John was talking about getting the scaffold group together, you know, what we're we going to call it. So Pete Shotton said, he said right away, the quarry men, because they went to Quarry Bank School. Hmm. And the first line of the Quarry Bank School is uh, quarry men old before their time straining each muscle and sinew and he said that he and john had no intention of straining any muscles or sinews <laughs> so he was called the quarry man after the school that makes sense 
that's kind of a, a natural, uh, you know, whoever came up with it, it seems to make sense. So you guys, so it says on your uh, biography here that you guys in 1997, the Quarrymen regrouped with the original members. Um, obviously, that didn't include John, Paul, and George, but um, that was Pete Shotton, Eric Griffiths, Rod Davis, Len Gary, and you. What was that like? Yes. That was awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> forget that. I mean, we hadn't really met up for 40 years. I mean, my drum kit had stayed on top of the wardrobe for 40 years, aging. And um, there's a lady in Liverpool. She was running the Beatles fan club, Jean Cattrall. Uh, and they were going to pull St. Peter's Church Hall down where it all happened, where John met Paul. Uh, so she wanted to recreate the 6th of July, 1957, as close as possible. And would we play, you know, as a one-off thing to raise money for charity to save the church hall? So I, I freaked out a little bit. You know, I said I haven't played drums for 40 years. <laughs> it was not, wasn't much good 40 years ago. I, I don't think I could do that. So. But then the phone started going and talked to Rod and, you know, talked to Len and we decided, Len said, okay, Pete Shotton again. Pete Shotton has a, a way of cutting through all the crap, as he calls it, you know. Yeah. Right to the point. He said, look, let's get together in Liverpool and play together. Just have a rehearsal. See how we feel. See what it feels like. So he said, okay. And then Len said we could use his house. So I got my drum kit down, cleaned it up a little bit, dusted it off, went to Len's house. Rod Davis came up from London uh, with his banjo. He now plays guitar. And a bit of fiddle, but he he does he came up with a, a guitar, TGF bass, and a washboard. Hmm. Uh, Eric Griffiths, he went out and bought a guitar because he didn't have one, <laughs> and he came down from Scotland. And we met up in Len's house. We all set up. Pete Hutton had washboard to play, and Len Gary had the TGF bass to play. Uh, then we just sat around and said, right, what, you know, what did we used to do? Someone said, well, we used to do like Lost John and Railroad Bill and Rock Island Line. So we all just started doing that and we were just 17, 18-year-old lads again. It was an incredible, an incredible experience. So after that, we said, Pete Chatton said, look, if the audience realize what we're doing and we appreciate what we're trying to do, it should be fine. So we said, okay, we'll do it. So. We did it. (laughs) So we played in the field in the afternoon and coming off the, you know, off the stage, people were asking for autographs and people were saying, have you got a CD? And I said, you've got to be crazy. You've just heard that, you know, (laughs) we only played twice rehearsal and, and, and the show. And then we did the grand dance again in the evening, but that was it. It was just incredible. It was a, we unveiled a plaque on the church hall on the Sunday. There was a Sunday service in the church. Uh, we all shook hands and Rod went to London. Eric went back to Scotland. Pete Sharp went to the Isle of Wight. Len and I were only two living in Liverpool. We just went home, disappeared and thought, well, that, that's the end of that. And then the phone started going and, you know, we were invited to uh, um, Amsterdam. Uh, so we decided, well, okay, we'll do that. They're going to pay us and they're going to fly us out there, put us up in a nice hotel. So we did that. And then uh, we got an invite about 
Cuba. Will you go to Cuba? So wow. I said, oh, well, okay, we'll go to Cuba. That'll be all right. Have a week in Cuba. He said, we can't pay you a fee, but we can fly you out. We can put you in the, uh, the National Hotel Havana, uh, where all the big stars used to stay. So we, we did that. We did a, a concert midweek in the um, American Theatre. You know, we did our speeches because it was had to be a, an intellectual thing because there were people, you know, almost if you say like secret police were keeping an eye on what was going on. It had to be some kind of an educational thing. It couldn't used to be rock and roll. And then we played in the American theatre on the Wednesday and then on the Thursday they pushed us up the coast to a place called Valadera, which was a beautiful modern hotel right on the, right on the coast mm. at the hotel. Go across the sands and you're in the, on the... On the beach there, paddling in the whatever it was. <laughs> so that was incredible. And since then, it, it didn't really stop until last year with the pandemic. Hmm. You know, Man. we've done that America that many. We must have done America a dozen times or more. Uh, we did America when Nowhere Boy came out. Wherever Nowhere Boy film was, uh, we were there to, to either play or, or talk, generally both. So we did 19 gigs, I think, in 21 days, right across America and back again. So brilliant time. Been to Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland, Italy, Spain. Uh, last year we were supposed to be going on a Mediterranean cruise, would you believe? But then the pandemic struck and so everything got cancelled. So. Sure, cruises kind of went away for a little bit there <laughs> for obvious yeah. <laughs> reasons. Wow, what a just amazing like journey that you you had a big break there in the middle, you know, of of all that stuff, you know, you you played, you kind of put like you said you put your drums away and then I'm glad you got your you got that experience. It's just so cool knowing that you, you know, after all that time really hit the road and we're, we're out there playing. And, and I mean, you're a big, you're a famous musician, obviously you're, you're a big deal. Well, so. I, well I'm a, I'm a bit of a drummer. I wouldn't say I'm a famous musician, I'm a <laughs> bit of a drummer, but I mean, th th this is the point. I mean, I mean, if it had come to me earlier, I'd have been, well, I'm too busy paying the mortgage, you know, raising a family. So when the, when the time came, you know, the mortgage was paid for and my daughters had grown up, uh, so my wife said, well, look, you know, you're free, you know, go and do it. I was self-employed, so if I wanted to take time off, I could do so. You know, I just I just took time off, closed the shop, and, and my customers had to wait for me till they came back. So, I mean, we were met, did Las Vegas. We were met at the airport by, a, you know, a stretch limo and hmm. took down the strip there and shown things. And wow. Put in fantastic hotels. We did Foxwood Casino even, you know. Out in Connecticut, there. Sure. I mean, that that was an incredible place, Foxwood Casino. And, you know, just with a little skiffle band playing <laughs> old 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 music. <laughs> yeah, but people love it. And so, just out of curiosity, for your career, you know, with a family and paying the mortgage, what what is your business? What what did you do for you know that most of your life? Well, I was an upholsterer, mm. uh, but I'd served five years in apprenticeship as an upholsterer. Uh, then I became a, a manager of a smaller uh, factory. And then I became self-employed, ran my own firm for a few years. And then I became literally uh, a one-man band, self-employed, working out of a small shop in a village called Frodsham, 
hmm. just outside Liverpool. Basically doing recovers, so I was quite happy. I was quite happy. I didn't have to pay any wages to anybody, but I earned, I kept. That's that great. was pretty good. I stopped working when I was well, few, oh, three years ago, and it was 97 I did my last job. That's um, so cool. Good for you. Yeah. So it kept, me, it kept me fit, it kept me healthy. But I say now, just being a quarryman occasionally, it's, you know, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. And that's just a perfect way to kind of wrap this episode up. Is, uh, and, and I am just so beyond thrilled to have had this conversation with you and to take the time. I'm, I'm honored that you took the time to speak with me. And, and again, I want to give a big thank you to your friend and mine, Mr. Andy Dwyer of ADC Drums. And Andy's just, we talk a lot. We go back and forth with messages and, um, Andy, just one time, it was just so nice. He was like, I want to support the show. Can I run some advertisements on the podcast mm -hmm. and sent me some money and I ran ads and people heard about the store. And it's just like, I'm so happy from my experiences doing this show to meet people like Andy and yourself who he connected us and just really pushed me because sometimes these take a while to get set up and there's scheduling and he, he stuck on me and said, you got to do it. <laughs> this is a good one. Colin, again, thank you for coming on and speaking with me. It's just so cool to, to have spent the time with you. Um, for everyone listening, Colin is going to take a quick couple minutes, and we're going to do a little bonus episode, and um, I'm going to ask him and uh, hear his experiences after the Quarrymen, if he went to see the Beatles living in Liverpool, what it was like, meeting Ringo ever, maybe, um, and I don't know the answer to these questions, so... Um, Go to drumhistorypodcast.com, click the Patreon link, and you can hear these bonus episodes with uh, lots of great people, including Mr. Colin Hanton. Um, so on that note, Colin, thank you so much for sharing your unbelievable experiences. You're a, you're a lucky guy, you know? I mean, you've, you've lived an amazing life and, and played with, obviously, some of the best musicians in the world. So I want to thank you for spending some time with me today. Okay, Bart, it's, uh, it's great being on, and I have watched some of your podcasts on there. Thank you. Hey, guys, thanks so much for listening to this unbelievable episode um, with just an absolute icon in drumming and music history. We didn't actually really talk about his book a lot in the episode, so I wanted to make sure I can tack this on after the fact and give a shout-out to Colin Hanton's book called Prefab. That's P-R-E colon fab exclamation point. Um, and his name is Colin Hanton, H-A-N-T-O-N. And uh, it's co-written with Colin Hall. And you can get it anywhere. Just search it on Amazon. It's an amazing piece of history that I used as a big resource for this episode. So go check it out. Also, another huge shout out to my friend Andy Dwyer from ADC Drums um, in Liverpool, I, this, we wouldn't have done this without him. So you can check out his website at adcdrums.co.uk. And Andy really knows his stuff and has some cool stuff on his website. So be sure to check that out. And as always, thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning. <laughs>